All right, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. <coughs> Title to our message this morning is The Heart of Israel's Song by the Sea. We're going to be looking at the entire song, verses 1 through 21. <coughs> then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling ceases the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Tell your people, O Lord, pass by. Tell the people, pass by whom you have purchased. You'll bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make our hearts good soil this morning. 
Not like the soil on the path that the birds came and plucked the seed away. Not like the shallow, rocky soil that was scorched by the sun. Not like the soil that was full of thorns. When the seed was planted, the cares of this world choked it out. But Lord, we pray that our hearts would be that soil that would receive the seed of the word. And it would grow up 30, 60, and 100 fold fruit. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. If you're just joining us, last week we saw the greatest miracle in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea. The Lord cleaved the waters in two and he piled them up in great walls so that Israel could walk through and they didn't even get mud on their sandals. And then when Egypt pursued them, God collapsed the walls of water and Pharaoh and his army utterly perished. And as we've been saying, it's a stunning picture of the gospel. Just as Israel passed through the Red Sea, so the church has passed through the crimson blood of Christ and she emerges white as snow, Isaiah 118. Just as God cast Pharaoh and his army into the deeps, so God has cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea, Micah 7:19. As we saw last week, Israel is finally free. And so what do they do? Well, only one response is possible. They sing to the Lord. Dear congregation, this is, this is why we were saved. We weren't saved for some other purpose. We were saved to sing, to glory, and to honor, to praise the living God. Singing is what Christians do, and only Christians sing. And you might say, well, wait a second, I know lots of non-Christians that sing. All I got to do is turn on the radio, and I can hear non-Christians singing all the time. Aha, but that's, that's false singing. Um, what do they sing about? Uh, children, boys and girls, do a little test. Compare the songs of the world with the songs of the church and ask yourself just a very simple question. What are they singing about what are they singing about do you know what the biggest difference between the songs of the world and the songs of the church is the world sings about themselves every song is about themselves you might say well wait a second pharaoh and egypt they sang to their gods aha but their gods were imaginations were inventions of their own imagination. They were singing about their own imagination. They were singing about themselves. The world sings to itself. That's the saddest thing about their music. If you've been a Christian, I, I, I kind of like Pearl Jam. I, if you've been here for a while, you know that. But I can listen to them for like five minutes before my heart just sinks nowadays. Because it just reminds me of how self-centered uh, I was in those days. The church, the church sings to the living God. The song right here in Exodus 15, it's the first 
song recorded in scripture, and A.W. Pink makes this observation. Quote, what did they sing about? Their song was entirely about Jehovah. They not only sang to the Lord, but they sang about the Lord. It was all concerning him and nothing about themselves. The word Lord occurs no less than 12 times. The pronouns he, him, thy, thou, thee are found 33 times in this song, end quote. They sing about God. What do we sing about? We sing about God. Why? Because there's no one like him in heaven above or on earth beneath. There's no one like the Lord. That's the very center of this song. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? We sing to God because he is the incomparable God. He is the unconquerable God. He is the ineffable God. That's why we sing. Singing alone, out of all of the exercises of the human soul, singing alone permits our souls to express affections to God that are too great for words. We sing to him precisely because his glory is like a burning fire in our bones that we can't hold it in. If we try to hold it in, it will cause us harm. We sing to him because there's no one else worthy of song. So here's our big idea this morning. The redeemed sing to the Lord, for there is no one who can compare to him in heaven above or on the earth beneath. So let's look at our doctrine first of all. Like any great song, this song has beautiful uh, symmetry in it. It's actually in the form of a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then they are repeated in reverse order. So you have ideas A, B, C presented and then they are repeated C, B, A. And what we often find in chiastic structures is one central idea found in the very middle and that is the very heart of uh, what, what everything else points to. So if you look at the insert in your bulletin this morning, it shows the chiastic structure of this song. I'm going to go through this off the bulletin. So if you look at the very top in verse 1, Moses sings, and then he gives the reason for singing. And then go down to the bottom in verse 20 and 21, Miriam sings. And then she gives, gives the same reason. The horse and his rider, God has thrown into the sea. Next one down, the next idea in verses two through three, Moses sings about who this Lord is. He is my strength. He is my song. He's my salvation. And then it's mirrored in verses 18 and 19. He is the Lord who reigns forever. Next in verses four through five, Moses sings about what the Lord did. He cast Pharaoh into the sea. Moses is looking backwards. But this is mirrored in, verses, in verse 17 when he sings about what the Lord is going to do. He's going to take them to his holy mountain. 
Next, in verses six through eight, Moses sings about how God's glory was seen in the destruction of Egypt, his majesty, wrath, and power. And this is mirrored in verses 14 through 16 when the nations see this same glory and they tremble. Next, in verses 9 through 10, Moses sings about how God poured out his vengeance on Egypt, but then this is mirrored in verses 12 and 13 when he sings about how God poured out his mercy on Israel. And then that brings us to the very heart of the song, the middle, verse 11. Every line in this song is pointing to that. Moses sings, who is like you, O Lord? among the gods. It's the heart of the song. So what does this mean? What what gods is he talking about? What gods is he making the comparison to? Well, the Hebrew word El sometimes means kings or rulers of the earth. We see this in Psalm 82.1. And certainly kings of the earth... uh, especially those of the past, like Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar and Caesar. These kings terrified mankind. At their command, men could be thrown into the furnace or fed alive to the lions. But what are great kings compared to Yahweh? Every king that has ever lived eventually becomes food for the maggots. But our king, The king of all kings is from everlasting to everlasting. Who is like you, O Lord, among the kings? The answer is no one. Or this word El for gods, it can mean the idols of the nations. It's seen in Daniel 11.36. And though it's true that these idols are, are false gods... Um, They are, in fact, demonic spirits. They're demons. And demons obviously terrorize mankind. One only has to think of that man possessed by legion in the Gospels and how he lived naked in the graveyard. No chain could contain him, and he lived and he cut himself all the time. Demons terrify men. But demons are absolutely terrified of the living God. When Jesus Christ confronted Legion, they were so terrified of him that they begged him to be sent to the pigs, and then they rushed into the sea and were drowned. Mark 5, 10 through 13. Who is like you, O Lord, among the demons? No one. So which meaning does Moses have in mind here? Kings or or demons? Well, both of them. That that was his chief adversaries in Egypt, the the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh. And you line all those mighty ones up on earth and heaven, whether they're thrones or dominions, whether they be demons or kings, and you'll find that not one of them is like the Lord our God. Moses continues through the heart of this song, halfway through verse 11 He says, who is like you, majestic in holiness? What is God's holiness? Well, God's holiness is his separateness, his set-apartness, his otherness. Calvin says here that 
um, holiness expresses that glory which separates God from all of his creatures. For God to be holy means that he is without peer. It means that even the heavens that he has made are impure in his sight. Job 15, 15, it means that he is incomparable, that there's nothing like him in heaven or on earth. And Moses modifies holiness by saying that God is majestic in holiness. Uh, The Hebrew word for majestic, it's related, uh, strangely enough, it's related to the idea of having a hernia. I wonder how many of you have had a hernia before. Um, What happens when you get a hernia? Well, your insides force themselves outside, don't they? Um, God's holiness is majestic. It means it's herniating in the cosmos. Nothing can hold it back. It's always forcing itself outwards for all to see. It's always going public. It's greater and wider and more majestic than all other things. It's forcing itself upon you. How is God's holiness specifically forcing itself outward? In his terrible justice and in his wonderful mercy. First, we see his terrible justice halfway through verse 11. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds. That word for awesome, it means fearful. It means terrible. It means dreadful. The punishments that God poured out on Pharaoh were the most fearful, most dreadful, most terrible punishments in the Old Testament. God's holiness goes public, especially when he brings the wickedness of the wicked back on their head. But God's holiness also forces itself outward in his wonderful mercy. End of verse 11. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Wonders, something wonderful, something distinguishable, that which is admirable, that which is a miracle. What's the greatest miracle, the greatest wonder, the most distinguished, most admirable thing that God has done in the universe? That a holy God would show mercy to sinners. The merciful God poured out his mercy on Israel, and it was the most wonderful, distinguished, admirable miracle that took place at the Red Sea. His otherness, his holiness goes public, especially when he shows mercy to sinners. So that's what this song is about. It's about the terrible, revenging justice and the wonderful, tender mercy of God. And these things are the very fuel of singing. That brings us to our doctrine this morning. The redeemed sing to the Lord, for there is no one who can compare to him in heaven above or on the earth beneath. Moses is Mo, Moses and all of Israel at the sea, they burst out in singing because of these two things, judgment and mercy. 
Let's consider just a little more in depth how justice and mercy is at the heart of this song. Let's look first of all at God's terrible justice. And I don't mean terrible in the sense of like God did something wrong. I mean terrible in the sense that there is nothing more frightening in the universe that when God judges sinners. Look at verse 3. Moses sings, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Who does this holy God wage war against? Well, Pharaoh and his army. They've set themselves against God and his people. That's verse 9. And so God goes to war against them. And look how Moses sings about their terrible fate. So we're just going to go bullet point. At the end of verse 4, they were sunk in the Red Sea. End of verse 5, they went down into the depths like a stone. End of verse 6, they were shattered. End of verse 7, halfway through verse 7, you overthrow your enemies. End of verse 7, it consumes them like stumble. End of verse 10, look at this one. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. End of verse 12, the earth swallowed them. But, it, but it's verse 10 that especially gets me. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. This language is not accidental. When God hardened the hearts of the Egyptians, recall that it was a judicial hardening. Their hearts became, in the Hebrew, uh, kavid. Um, it means heavy. Their hearts became heavy, and they sank like lead because their hearts were weighed down with evil. Um, John Currid writes about Egyptian theology here. He says, the Egyptians believed that after death, a person would face judgment in the underworld. The heart of the deceased would be weighed on the scales of truth. On one side of the scale was the heart, and on the other was the feather of truth and righteousness. If the heart weighed heavy with misdeeds, the person was deemed unjust and unrighteous and would be banned from the Egyptian afterlife. End quote. This whole scene of the Egyptians sinking like lead is pointing to the final day of judgment. Wicked will sink down like lead to the very depths of hell forever and ever, a millstone, as it were, tied around their necks, and they'll be cast into the deep darkness. The earth will swallow them up. There'll be no escape. You might say, but we already saw this last week. Um, why, why is Moses repeating it here? Well, he's not simply repeating it. Him and Israel are singing about it. They're singing about it. They praise the God of heaven. They adored his name. They exalted his holiness because now they see that God is a God who will judge finally and fully all evil in the universe. There's coming a time, if there's such thing as TVs in the future, when you will turn on your TV in the new heavens, the new earth, and there'll be no Hamas attacks. 
There'll be no starving children. There'll be no more war. There'll be no more dictators. And you will sing about it. You will celebrate God because he is a God alone who can do this. Your congregation, who else on heaven and earth can do that? We look at the world today and we we see evil men doing evil things and it looks like they're getting away with it. Who is going to set these things right? No human court can. That's why Israel sang. That's why we can sing because no one in heaven and earth can do what the Lord has done. Judgment belongs to him. He will cast the wicked into hell on the last day and the redeemed will praise his name for it because the earth will be set free. But next, consider God's wonderful mercy in this song. Far greater than God's justice is his wonderful and tender mercy. God's justice in scripture is called his opus alienum, his strange work, Isaiah 28, 21. But God's mercy is the very thing that he delights in. Jeremiah 32, 41 says, God says, I rejoice in doing them good. He's reluctant to judge, but he rejoices in showing mercy. Look how Moses sings about this. Verse 13, you have led your people in your steadfast love. If you have a KJV, it says mercy. It's the word hesed. It's uh, God's most special word for his never leaving, never forsaking covenant love. It's the special mercies that he reserves only for his people. And then we see it again at the end of verse 13. Israel is the people whom you have redeemed. Or the end of verse 16. Israel is the people whom you have purchased. Why did, why did God need to show mercy to Israel? Why did they need to be redeemed by the Passover lamb? Because we've seen that they were just as guilty, every bit as guilty as Egypt. Our call to worship this morning, we have the psalmist speaking of this event years later. And he says, both we and our fathers have sinned. They rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. And right at the very shores of this sea, Israel was rebelling in the very act of God saving them. They're kicking and screaming against his salvation. And he shows them mercy. He saves a people who don't want to be saved. He held back the judgment they deserved. And again, you might say, well, we saw this mercy last time. Why is Moses repeating it here? Because now he and Israel are singing about it. They're praising Jehovah for his tender mercies. They're lifting his, their voices to him for redemption, for purchase. But there's more. Look, look with me, because they sing about his future promises. Look at verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. 
God was going to bring them to his mountain, his holy abode. It's um, indicative of bringing them back to paradise. Israel was going to come into God's sanctuary, his dwelling place. Man was going to be brought back to God. Dear congregation, who else in heaven and earth can do that? Isn't that what we all long for? We long to be brought back to God, and only God can do it. You and I are every bit as guilty as Israel, but God took the infinite weight of our sin, that sin that would drag us down to the depths like lead in the water, and he placed it on his son on the cross. Jesus bore the burden. We must sing to him, oh, what tender mercy, oh, what steadfast love, that the earth will not swallow us up on that day. The ground will be solid because we're on the rock the rock of our Redeemer. And we're going to go to the mountain of God. We're going to go to Mount Zion. We're going to go to the new Jerusalem where, we're, where we will dwell with God forever and ever from age to age, world without end. Who else could do this but the God of heaven and earth? That's why the redeemed sing. That's our doctrine, that the redeemed sing to the Lord, for there's no one who can compare to him in heaven above or on the earth beneath. So let's look then at our duty. And our first duty is just to answer an objection. I know that many Christians struggle with singing. And there are Christians in this congregation who struggle with singing. Perhaps someone might say something like this. Well, singing is, is an unnecessary exercise. It's far more rational to simply speak of God's worth in prose and not in poetry. To speak with reason rather than to sing with music. How do we answer that? Well, first, we simply say that singing is not an optional exercise in the Christian life. It's a command from God. God tells us in Ephesians 5.19 to sing in an imperative mood. Sing, make melody to the Lord in your hearts. But second, singing actually does something to us. I imagine if I preached like that objection um, just suggested that we sing like. If I got up here and <laughs> just, you know, like those, um, those 18th century films, you know, where the, the preacher's up in the, the pulpit and he's just, he's purely reading the, the manuscript and it is more boring than anything that you've ever seen in your life. I imagine that if I preached like that, that this room would be empty. Why do we preach? Why not just read it very rationalistically and without affection? Is it not that God wants your heart to be stirred, your affections to be raised, your hearts to be lifted up to the throne of God? That's why we sing. Jonathan Edwards says here that the duty of singing praises to God is appointed 
entirely to excite our affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Brackle says it uh, much more simply. He says, break open your mouth and your closed heart will open as well. God wants us to sing precisely because it's an exercise of our hearts. It brings us to our second duty then. Consider what singing accomplishes. What does singing accomplish for believers? What does it accomplish for us? Well, singing gives us spiritual strength. Singing gives us spiritual strength. Verse 2 in our passage, the Lord is my strength and my song. Those two are coupled together on purpose. When King Jehoshaphat uh, and his army ran out of water, they called for Elisha the prophet to, to help them. And Elisha, the first thing that he did is he called for a musician to play one of the songs of the Lord. 2 Kings 3.15, now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. The song of the Lord brought strength to the prophet so that he could answer Jehoshaphat according to the word of the Lord. Loved ones, that's what singing does. Do you feel weak? Do you feel heavy laden? Do you feel like you can't go on? Then break open your mouth. And sing to the Lord, and God Almighty will come upon you. Next, singing brings you into the presence of God. Singing brings you into the presence of God. Halfway through verse 2, we read, This is my God, and I will praise him. I will praise him. In the Hebrew, it means I will make a dwelling place for him. That's why the King James Version says, I will prepare for him a habitation. Where is God's presence especially found? In the singing of his people. Psalm 22, 3. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. He inhabits the praises of his people. Show me a person who sings to the Lord and I'll show you a person where the spirit of the living God is present. Do you want to experience the presence of the Lord? Then sing to him. Your very singing invites his presence to come. Next. Singing helps you forget about yourself. Singing helps you forget about yourself. Um, what, what's our besetting sin as believers, loved ones? It's happening throughout this time together. The internal tape is playing. We think about ourselves. It's I, 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 me, me, me. It's playing all the time. 
What happens in those precious moments of self-forgetfulness when you're uh, perhaps standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon or you're on the beach at the Pacific Ocean and you see the glory of God? What are you freed from? Yourself. You have that brilliant moment of self-forgetfulness and you're in the presence of the glory of God. That's what singing does. It focuses our hearts on the Lord. Singing to the Lord invites us to be self-forgetful, to be in awe of Him alone. It sets the soul free from self, and it holds us captive to the glory of God. What does singing do for others? What does singing do for others? Well, singing stirs up other believers to serve the Lord. It stir, your singing stirs up other believers to serve the Lord. It, in verses 20 and 21 of our passage, we read that Miriam, the prophetess, she got her stuff together, and then she sang to them. Now, I think it's fascinating that Miriam is called a prophetess here. It's the only place. Why is she called a prophetess here? Well, singing is a form of prophesying. It's a form of telling forth the word of God, not telling forth the future, but proclaiming the word. Her prophesying was a song. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture. In 1 Chronicles 25, 1 through 3, the sons of Asaph were said to prophesy to the lyre and the harp and these other instruments. Their singing was prophesying. It was done to music, to singing. When we sing, and especially when we sing Scripture, we're singing forth the Word of God, and it's a form of prophesying. Now, Let me ask you, what effect will that have on the hearts of other believers? What effect will that have on the hearts of other believers? What effect has that had on you? I've been, uh, I I think every part of the service is my favorite part, but singing especially is my favorite part. Have you ever been like at a, a conference where there's 5,000 people all singing to the Lord? And you, you, you don't even have to sing. You can just sit in there. You know what will happen to your heart? You're stirred up because the word of God is being prophesied to your soul and your heart is being drawn up, as it were, into heaven. That's what Miriam was aiming at in this text, to stir the people of God up. That's why she was called a prophetess. But singing also convicts unbelievers of sin. Singing also convicts unbelievers of sin. I didn't get this verse until this week. In 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25, Paul is talking about church order. And he says this. He's comparing tongues to prophecy. He says, if all prophesy, the church, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters... He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Isn't that fascinating that Paul gives this scenario? If all of the church is prophesying 
and then an unbeliever walks in. When does all the church prophesy at the same time? When they sing, when they tell forth the word of God together. It's singing is massively evangelistic. Unbelievers may never hear public singing except for maybe at a baseball game or, or a Pearl Jam concert. But every week when the, when the saints sing to the triune God, the unbeliever's heart is exposed to it. And in such an experience, Paul says that the unbeliever will declare that God really is among you. This is such a motive for singing loudly and joyously in church that the unbeliever can see that following Jesus Christ is not a grievous thing, but it's the most joyous thing, the most happy thing, the most free thing. Our third duty then is to examine ourselves. Loved ones, if you have no desire to sing, then what will you do in heaven? The new heavens and the new earth will be filled with songs to our Redeemer, to our Jesus. And when you see him face to face and you see the scars in his hand and on his side and you know that he did that for you, how will you respond? Will not song erupt from your lips when you see that your Savior really loved you and that he really gave his life for you? How could you not sing? And this is just as true now. Loved ones, Jesus is in our presence right now. That's what's happening here on the Lord's day. Jesus says, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Will we not sing to him now? Our last duty then is to warn those who have not yet believed the gospel, who can't sing. That's you, please listen. Israel and Egypt are representative of all men. They're either singing on the shore to the Savior or they're sinking in the depths like a stone. There's, there's no third category. And there's no singing in hell. There's, there's only weeping. There's no music in hell. There's only the gnashing of teeth. It's a, it's a place of terrible justice with no mercy. And you will sing forever and ever because of the guilt of your own heart, the weight of it, the burden of it. You'll be swallowed up in misery and ruin and you'll never be able to escape. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. You're a sinner. Jesus is a savior who saves sinners. He died on a Roman cross so that sinners could have all of their sins punished in him, and he rose again from the dead on the third day so that sinners could have a righteousness by which they might stand before a holy God. And the scripture says that whoever has that son, whoever has him by faith, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Trust in him, believe in him, hope on him, call upon his name. 
If you trust him and receive him as Lord, you will be saved and you will have songs to sing about not only in this age, but in the age to come, world without end. Let's look finally then at our delight. What is our delight this morning? To sing. Verse one, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Why should you sing, dear church? Why should you sing? Because Christ has already taken the greatest plague away from your heart. He took away that sin that enslaved you. He took away that sin that condemned you. He took away that sin that was that lead that was dragging you down to the depths of hell. And he put it away through the cross of Christ. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might forever die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. Why should we sing? Because God is going to take us one day to Mount Zion where we will live with him forever and ever. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Doesn't your mind just short circuit the very idea of being with God, of dwelling with him? of having your face, your tears wiped away, of having death removed, and you're in the presence of God, in the special presence of God. That's why we can sing. I think our text gives us justification for saying that fathers especially have the greatest impact on singing. Fathers especially. Moses mentions his father in this song. Look at verse two. He, He says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. One author says here that unlike other places, Moses does not speak of the Lord as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but as my father's God. In other words, Moses is talking about Amram, his own father. We don't know much about Amram, but we do know the most important thing about him. Amram and his wife were strong believers. Hebrews 11.23 says that by faith, Moses' parents hid them from the edict of the king. And as Moses is singing this song, his father comes up. Why? Because he was now singing to the same God who his father sang to. Fathers, brothers, we have such a great privilege to sing with our children. I think that I am most impacted in singing by my own dad. 
I used to hear him sing at church when I was a little, little boy, and he was one of the loudest singers, and he would modulate his voice to harmony and melody, and I've never been able to quite do that. But he taught me, my father's God. My father taught me to sing. Fathers, you have the opportunity to teach your children the greatest song in the universe. You get to disciple your children, not only in the truths of the Bible, but in the workings of their heart. During family worship, yes, read to them, but sing to them. And if you mess up, laugh about it. Laugh about it together. And then pick up and sing again. We do have this thing called YouTube. It's quite an amazing invention. Don't know if you've heard of it, but you can actually play songs on it at the same time that you're also singing. You can sing with your kids. Sing with your children. Show them how to celebrate God, it's a delight of delight. Sing with them. They already want to sing. They will walk around the house. The tune of their heart is already making melody. We have to teach them not to do that. No, we should foster it. We should throw wood on that fire and make it go ablaze. Sing with your children so that they might stand on the shores of eternity one day and say, this is my God. I will praise him. He is my father's God. And I will exalt him. Let's pray. What a privilege, O Lord. What a mercy, O Lord, that you have designed singing so that we could vent our affections, so that we could let the fire out of our hearts towards you. Lord, help us in this great work. Help us in this mighty work. Strengthen us in this work that we might sing in such a way where anybody who comes in amongst us might say, God is with you. And help our fathers, Lord, to teach their children how to sing. That the next generation might be able to rise up and and do the same with their kids. Because, Lord, there is no one like you among the gods. There is no one like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. There is no one like you in all the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.